Welcome to the Payroll Podcast, the show that explores the latest insights and innovations in the world of payroll. I'm Nick Day, founder of JGA Recruitment, a specialist global payroll search firm. I'm also a qualified executive coach and a recognized Reward 300 member. And my goal for this show is clear, is to bring you expert guests and payroll leaders who are driving this industry forward. From cutting edge technologies and trends to compliance, analytics, automation, leadership strategies, and more, we're gonna cover it all on this show to help you to deliver accurate and timely payrolls across your organizations. So let's join together in raising the strategic profile of payroll worldwide. Grab your coffee or your favorite beverage and let's get started. A new tax year, a new outlook, new economic potentially shrinking or recovering or growing, We'll, we'll find out. We're gonna be talking about the new year we have ahead of us during today's episode of PQT. My name is Nick Day. I'm the host of the Payroll Podcast, so please do subscribe and check that out when you get a moment. I'm a Reward 300 member and I'm founder of the Payroll Specialist Recruitment Company, JGA Recruitment. So if you need a vacancy help with, I'm the person to get in touch with. I've been in this industry now for over 20 years. Uh, I've known the panel here for all of that time pretty much, so let me welcome those to the show as well. From my uh, left to right, I'll start with uh, Simon Parsons, if you can introduce yourself, please. Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be with you. and. Simon Parsons, Director of Compliance Strategies for ST Works in the UK. Um, I'm also a member of Reward 300. I uh, have the uh, uh, Master of Science in Peril Management. I'm a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Peril Professionals. Sit on a number of government panels and committees and uh, represent the IT industry as the payroll specialist group for the BCS. Fantastic. And going, moving from my left to right, uh, Mr. Richard George. Yeah, very similar to Simon. I could just cut a couple of words out and replace them. Uh, Richard George, Director of Education Operations at the Payroll Centre. Also Reward 300, also sits on government panels, uh, 35 years in the industry, uh, and obviously heading up the largest face-to-face payroll training company in the UK. You don't look old enough for 35 years, Richard. I I started when I was four. I was four, Nick, when I joined the industry. Super dry, keeping you young at heart. Uh, Andy Nichols, if you can introduce yourself, please. (laughs) I can't substitute those. <laughs> so, um, you know, my background is payroll, but I've spent the last 10 years with a regulator, uh, particularly focusing on helping payroll professionals, payroll software with automatic enrollment. And um, that's what I'm here for, really, the, the pension bit of, of payroll. Go. Now, on to today's topic discussions, which are, as you can see in front of you, the new tax year view and outlook. Is it recovery or was it shrinking? Uh, blended Class 1A and P11D cycle, the reliefs and investment zones impact, the national living wage increases. I know that's been a pretty hot topic in the social channels that I've been following. Uh, the future of pay and payroll trends, uh, pensions updates, where Andy will very much be bringing you all the latest in the world of pensions. And we're going to talk very briefly about the launch of the SD Works Academy. So if you're interested in finding out more about that, stay until the end of the show. So let's jump into the first topic then, new tax year. Uh, busy time for payroll professionals recently as they've been manically trying to get through year end. How's the outlook looking? Uh, we've got holidays in May, which are a new thing to negotiate, um, and we've got a whole new outlook. And depending on what side of the fence you sit on here, it's either shrinking and, uh, and not so positive or it's recovering and looking great. So I'm going to let Simon take the floor on this one. You can give us a bit of an overview on, on your outlook on the, the new tax year, Simon. 
Yeah, it's been an interesting uh, little cycle. So we've gone away from the three change, national insurance and everything else. So hopefully we're all prepared for the new year uh, and uh, and hopefully some settling down uh, than the prior couple of years of dealing with COVID, etc. I guess there's an element of does that impact us as an industry? Because uh, is there any reason for us to be known that much? Plus, there are other implications, I'm sure we'll cover them, that uh, may be impacting the means of pay and considerations as we go through. But uh, on the economy, it's an element of what is it doing? In some ways, it's been predicted that we'll go through a rocky time. I think there's some press today to say that actually it's working out a little bit better than people thought. So the pound's gaining a little bit, etc. So um, uh, I think the real test is maybe with some of our attendees to find out what's happening in their business, really, and whether they think the future's looking good or bad. Uh, just some initial thoughts, Nick. Fantastic. I know, Richard, you're always uh, politically charged on these matters. What's your view on well, the outlook at the moment, sir? I think, uh, I guess, first of all, on that front, and obviously, as Simon said, it is a very strange sort of quarter coming up, um, especially when you look at what was said in the budget, uh, but also how it's now looking. You know, there is a perception that July could be a real shape month um, because the expectation of the reductions that are being seen wholesale should start hitting the UK in July. Um, so especially when it comes to fuel, uh, sorry, uh, energy. Um, and also there is obviously the big drive at the moment about, excuse the pun, uh, around fuel costs versus wholesale. Um, given that wholesale diesel is currently the same as petrol, um, we're not seeing that and we should be. So I think it's very volatile, um, but possibly in a good way over the next three months. I think from a payroll angle, however, obviously new tax year, very different challenges. Um, obviously last year it was the merry-go-round. Will they, won't they? Yes, they will, but they'll end up putting it back as they did. Um, where this year, obviously, we have a little bit more focus due to the freezes, which do make a significant difference. But I think it's more about this year, the management of business within payroll. So I will give you a couple of examples. Number one, um, I was at a, for a shared services forum meeting this week um, and far higher a percentage than I expected. And we're talking about big business here are actually either at or talking about, for instance, four day weeks now, um, which makes a significant difference to modeling, pay, attendance, et cetera. But I think also on the back of that, just purely the variation in employment at the moment is probably a bigger fixture to the payroll industry than deducting tax and national insurance. I guess the only final aspect really is the, I guess, increased or convoluted um, benefit program that we're all going to be going through up till July because of, and we're going to talk about blended rates and such like as well. So a little bit more work where there normally wouldn't be, a little less work where there normally wouldn't be, but a lot of variant work that we don't usually or haven't seen in the past. I guess is my very nice. Point. We're not going to jump into these bullet points you see in front of you on the slide in just a moment before we do. So, Andy, a little of a pensions outlook. Anything we should uh, consider we'll be thinking about before. We, I know we've got a pensions update later on, but keen to get your overview outlook on the on the pensions industry in particular. Well, I mean, one of the concerns with the cost of living crisis, etc., was what will happen to people paying contributions? Will they start to cease membership or perhaps reduce their contributions but or will employers perhaps start being a bit naughty and not 
put people in role, but the information we can gather from various sources would indicate, including RTI, um, would indicate that actually that is happening, that people are still are not choosing to reduce their contributions or opt out, and that employers are complying. So it's really good news. You know, that's good. what we, that's good. It is good because that's like, your future. Like good news. Let's talk about the uh, the impact on payroll managers then for holidays in May. You can see there three out of five four day weeks in May are going, you know, being impacted. Simon, tell us a little bit about um, how that may impact on on payroll managers and the, the effects for them. Well, yeah, it means the weeks are short. So from a practical point of view, we've got to squeeze everything in in a little bit shorter. I mean, two of those were planned and one of them uh, has been planned, but not for so long because it relates to the coronation. But there are the impacts of what that means for the workforce in general and then payroll. So we'll have the arguments of whether um, the coronation bank holiday is paid or unpaid, whether it's part of the 5.6 weeks or is it in addition. So we then go into effects of, um, you know, are we talking about the statutory holiday entitlement, 5.6 weeks? Does that increase by a day? Doesn't have to. The law doesn't require it to. Or whether that's increasing by a contract where the contract states that bank holidays are in addition. So there's an element of what's your employer doing? Are you paying it? Are you not paying it? Is it allowed off? Is it not allowed off? Is it just a normal way day uh, or not? So there are some considerations for this month of what's happening. What happens with pro rata for starters, leavers, uh, and so on. So there is that sort of payroll question of uh, May's a strange time, especially as the tax year has just started. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to a long weekend. So there's a requirement there for payroll managers potentially to look at some of the HR or the, the employment contracts to understand what they need to do or what they don't, and don't don't take any assumptions on that front. So you need to be communicating with your HR counterparts here potentially to find out what's what. Um, you've also got a, a point here about Rishi Sunak's maths proposal. Uh, Richard, one if you wanted to, or, or Simon, I'd, if you wanted to bring that to life. I'd start with Simon because I'm not sure what that one is. <laughs> Simon, back to you. Yeah, well, Rish is obviously promoting uh, the teaching of maths. I guess the alignment there is what's that got to do with the payroll industry as well. We're all about maths, aren't we? But uh, there's some concern that maths is sort of a bit of a uh, forgotten or an unliked subject. So obviously there's a promotion. Equally, does that go into the industry's promotion of actually getting apprentices in and young people? Um, so, uh, yeah, Rish is uh, making math study compulsory to the age of 18. I don't think that means you have to do A-level math. I did A-level math. I'm not saying I was any good at it, but I did A-level math uh, or, or not. But uh, and also the promotion of teachers in the industry, because um, uh, a lot of math teachers aren't, if I put it that way their degrees are usually in some other science because those that have got maths degrees tend to do something else which usually pays a lot more so there's a of how do you encourage that i think that's the reason because it's a recent government announcement and how that aligns with actually does that affect us as an industry because we're all about maths aren't we yeah very nice absolutely right. used, used to be simon used, used to, to be, be. Used maths to be. and tech now isn't it's, all a, it's, it's of... just a button now button yeah. <laughs> we've had a we've had a couple of questions come in, which is which is great. Um, so do keep those coming in. Uh, one uh, is a little bit uh, longer to read out than the other. I'm going to start with um, 
uh, one which I'm going to try and answer if I can. It's a um, it was in relation to a recent cyber attack incident that people may or may not be aware of. It's coming from Amanda. It just as after the recent cyber incident, are the panel confident systems are protected and have robust plans, plans in place? Something I've been discussing a lot in a lot of um, the articles and things I write is for payroll professionals need to be really aware that this is very much on the increase. Cyber attacks within payroll departments, um, you're going to see a lot more of this. So do everything you can to to practice and, and run your due diligence in advance um, because it's, it's very likely that many people on today's webinar are going to be uh, attacked at some point. In relation to the um, the incident that Amanda's um, talked about here with, with in relation to SD Works, um, I, I obviously don't work for SD Works. Mm -hmm. I'm aware of some of the um, responses to it. I know that their systems were temporarily offline due to some unauthorized activities in the hosted UK data center, but they did take immediate action. Uh, they still are in regular contact with all of their customers, I believe, to inform of the latest updates. Uh, all customers were paid in that uh, in that period. But more importantly, for everyone that may be concerned about this, my understanding is that the forensic investigations by the experts um, have, uh, which they've launched has now been finalized. And there's no indication at the moment that any data left the data center. Uh, they have not been contacted by any identified attacker groups and no publication on the dark web regarding this incident has been um, released either. So we're hoping that's all been, been managed. But I think uh, there's a bigger thing to, to be aware of here. And that is that if you work in payroll in the amount of data that you manage, which is often bigger than any other area of any other business, and whether it's an in-house payroll bureau or service provider, unfortunately, you are going to be ripe for potential cyber attacks in the future. So it's it's really will pay in advance, particularly of this new year's looking for new outlooks to make sure that you have tested your protocols, that you're working very closely with your IT and CTO operations uh, of operations to make sure that you are protected as best you can be. Uh, but that's my understanding on the SD um, work cyber incident as, as far as I know it. I don't have any other further information to give. I don't think my panel do either as far as I'm aware. So I'm um, hoping that answers your question, Amanda. We're going to run into another question, uh, which is quite a long one. It comes in from Louise. It says, month 12 and brackets, the month we went live, uh, close bracket, does not match what shows for month 12 on the HMRC gateway. This is the case for all seven of our legal entities. This has, of course, resulted in an underpayment of PAYE showing on our account. I spoke to HMRC and the advisor tried to be helpful, but all I could do was request the FPS that they are using to be broken down to, to the employee level and sent to me in Excel format so I can investigate. The first FPS was sent with all employees having the change of payroll ID indicator box ticked, so we should not be having these issues. Can anyone offer any insight on the panel into why this happened so that I can explain to our finance teams? I have raised disputed charges, but HMRC can take months or even years to respond. Um, I don't know if that, if it all came through. If it did, uh, if one of my panel would like to, to tackle that for me, please. Simon, this is deja vu. We had this last last PQT, didn't we? I, was say, very I, I can remember this conversation a month ago. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, it's one of my specialities, Nick, um, as chair of an organisation called Irene, which is in uh, its rich, original name comes from Inland Revenue Electronic Exchange Network, and it was the electronic exchange network of electronic, well, of uh, EDI filers originally, but now these days XML. So part of the RTI. The RTI system's not very well designed. So um, uh, employer charge queries actually happen. They, the HMRC will say it's quite a small percentage. I think they'll say that's about 2% of employers have charge queries. So that does seem quite small. But when that's 1.6 million 
employers, actually that number's quite large. And uh, many of the people even listening on to this uh, uh, discussion or the webinar today may have experienced what they call charge resolution cases. Usually it occurs because of duplication, inadvertent duplication, so uh, and timing. So uh, it's where HMRC thinks people have multiple employments. They can take a significant amount of time. But I say there are specialists out there that can assist. And uh, generally, the finger of blame is pointed at employers. Um, as a representative of employers, I tend to point the finger back and say it's the poor design of the RTI system. But I'm sure uh, Rich will be aware of it with a lot of your membership, I would thought, Richard. Um, I'm aware of it, certainly as the chair of the Irene group, um, of it happening. And in fact, there is actually an article in the April bulletin. So the employer's bulletin that came out uh, has, a, has a section called Employer POA Charged Queries and goes through various recommendations. I tend to take some of it with a pinch of salt. Uh, it's not overly accurate in what it says because it's given from a, a point of view from the HMRC side as opposed to you as an employer. But um, charge resolution case is the correct thing to do. Um, but it's interesting. But I'm presuming this scheme was reported previously and it's changed. And it's quite a common uh, point where things happen, even with the change of payroll ID uh, markers. Um, don't know if you've got any other thoughts there, Richard, but I'm sure you come across this a lot. Yeah, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's just it, it becomes an audit request, and the trouble is, is just how long that takes um, is the problem. Yeah. But uh, it needs to be raised because it will hopefully at least stop the interest. Um, yes. It's a bit like most things. As soon as you escalate it, it pauses the case, which is really what you want to do more than anything else. Um, it's a bit like, you know, if you get a parking fine, um, and it's wrong, you have to contact them straight away and appeal it because that stops the process um, and stops the time. So that's probably the key for you. It's just you've got to be ready. That It's a very slow process. I think it's just, you know, there's two, there's so many moving parts against a system that has only so much width. Um, and therefore it can see one thing and not another. It can see, not see the thing it should have seen first and see the second one. Um, which could well be the case and it just isn't aware of the change. So it's therefore not enacting the the the, uh, the uh, mark correctly. But there's just so many ways that there can be fluctuation. But then you're dealing with 9 billion pieces of data. Um, so it's not exactly uh, a small fry piece of kit. Yeah, and there's awkward people around in the world, Nick, as well, because, you know, I'm I'm called by my middle name, and HMRC may get confused over that type of thing, especially when I change well, employer. I may have changed address. No, she's not the only one with this problem. As you say, we've tackled this a couple of times before. So uh, I don't know. Maybe there's confidence in numbers, Louise. You're not alone with this issue. That's why Richard mentioned deja vu. Interesting. You've had a bit of deja vu with the uh, the coronation situation as well, of course, with the the bank holiday last year with the Queen's uh, Queen situation. So. Um, for those that yeah. are on that uh, PQT, is a little bit of deja vu involved in there, but do check those employment contracts and check yeah, whether the, or not the that needs to be paid. Yeah, I was going to say, the difference issue with the holidays is it's week after week. Um, so there is a secondary issue, and that is resource. You know, I'm sure a huge number of people have booked a two-week holiday that starts now um, because you're getting two weeks off for eight days holiday. Um, so uh, there, there's other aspects to it as well as 
the pay and rostering side, I think. For those that hadn't worked that out, Richard, they're busy now leaving this show to go and fill in their holiday requests for Absolutely. <laughs> Monday. Well, let's, laugh, get the, everyone in, let's get everyone involved <laughs> in the conversation as well. Uh, we're gonna, let's run our first poll. Um, I want to find out how the audience feel about entering this new tax year. Are they stable and confident, slightly uncertain, shaky and concerned, or extremely worried? Uh, be really keen to find out what you all think. So fill in your answers uh, and stat poll. It's a good opportunity as well if anyone has any other questions they want to put to the panel or wait for those questions to come back. Um, I will obviously try and answer, ask a, any questions you may have. So this is a really good opportunity for you to put any questions in the box and I will ask my panel while waiting for those poll results to come through. Um, and in fact, while we're doing that as well, so everyone else know we're about to move into the blended class A and P11D cycle uh, stuff. We're going to be talking about the transition from paper to digital P11Ds, uh, the introduction of blended class 1As and changes in filing processes and deadlines. I mentioned that because I know again that the blended class 1A um, has been something that's been quite prevalent in social media chats and people have a lot of questions around this area. So again, any questions you have um, around those transitions or all those changes or that introduction, please put it in the questions box and we'll ask our panel as we get to that section. Right, let's have a look at how this poll is looking and see if people are confident or concerned as we enter this new financial year. Uh, for those that are listening in audio only, um, the results are 57% say stable and confident, which is great to hear, 38% slightly uncertain, 6% shaky and concerned, and nobody whatsoever is extremely worried, which is really, really good news. Um, have you come to yourself, uh, Simon? Any thoughts on these results? Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? So stable and confident. I'm hoping so, because uh, stability has kind of returned a little bit. So uh, that's good to see. Although I think we've got some sweeping up to do, which you've kind of mentioned, which might uh, give us a little bit of a bumpy road up ahead. But, uh, but no, good. Less Less chances and less prime ministers in 2023 than we've had in 2022. <laughs> Great. Well, let's jump in then to um, our blended class 1A and P11D section. And I'm going to come to you again, Simon, if you can just give us a bit overview into uh, into what we need to know. And then we'll, we'll hand the discussion over for, for Richard's thoughts as well. Yeah, sure. So it's probably a little bit of a reminder here and also a bit of surprising news from February, which we've talked a little bit about before on the reporting of expenses and benefits. But uh, for P11DB, uh, and we've seen questions on social media going round, what is the rate applied for Class 1A national insurance? Just a reminder, it's 14.53%. And some will be saying, well, that can't be right because they didn't get the benefit until January. Why is it 14.53? Because the secondary and I is 13.8%. Well, the rate is 14.53 because the assessment point is the end of the tax year based on the full tax year, no matter when you had the benefit. So you'll remember that uh, originally 13.8% was the secondary class uh, one national insurance rate, so the class 1A for 21-22. Then in 22, we went to 15.05, and then it dropped back down to 13.8 from November. So this blended rate is a combination of the both, which kind of transition us for the whole of 22-23 at 14.53%. So when you do any of your benefit calculations, you're not interested when they had the benefit. It's just, did they have the benefit in that tax year? in which case the class 1A is 14.53, no matter when. And uh, some may have um, 
be confused by that or be wondering what to do. And I've certainly seen a load of queries and questions about uh, what rate they meant to use and that can't be right. Um, so those are the initial elements on the class 1A part. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we've seen a lot of those. So, so people wanting to, wanting to calculate it monthly on the rates at that month seems to be the most common yeah. error, unfortunately. It, it, it's right, but it's wrong um, in that respect because of, as you say, Simon, it's when it's returned um, and it's on the year. But, you know, th there has been a level of confusion on those grounds. And to be honest with you, I don't think the remit from HMRC helped. Um, it didn't no. state this. It just stated for directors, it's 14.53% for the year and for a PLMD and obviously PSA the same. But it didn't talk about part year or how that should be treated, which is probably why there's been this level of confusion there. Well, and taking that a stage further, uh, as you mentioned it, Richard, is lots of people are trying to calculate an employee level class 1A liability. So they kind of uh, have something that they can play with for their GLs or costings and things like that. The reality is class 1A isn't assessed at employee level. It's assessed on an employer. Absolutely. So you actually have to total up all the benefits for the year, no matter when they're given, and find the benefit tax value amount you know, what is going to be taxable, you take that value as a whole for the employer, apply 14.53 once. Where So if you do it individually, you'll lose it. It won't be the same because the rounding points are all different. So it's remembering that some of these are actually an employer liability on a total, not a total of individual liabilities. Um, but you know, each to their own, people do a variety of things. But I think also, you know, there any is other, possibly, any... I was going to say, there's possibly a quite a tough conversation because, uh, you know, on a, in a larger business, you would be forecasting and you would certainly not have forecasted 14.53% cost. Um, so I think there is an on problem or, or, or a, you know, a, a bit of awareness required because remember, this isn't till July. Um, so right. we're still months away from it. So if people have a, you know, a reasonably large, PSA or P11D requirements. Go on, I would say it could be time to have that conversation with finance to make sure they're aware of that variation. Sorry. Any other considerations at all that we need to run through before we open up the release and investment zones impact uh, session? Well, yeah, well, we could talk a little bit about P11Ds, uh, Nick, a bit more, but uh, that was a bit of a shock from February Employer Bulletin that they announced that uh, from 6th of April 23, no more paper forms could be submitted. And in fact, the message on the street is they're actually rejecting them now. So as agents or, or payroll people or, or benefit people send in the paper documents, they're getting them back in the post rejected. Uh, so, uh, because we may think, oh, from 6th of April, they're talking about the new year. They're not talking about the new year. They're talking about the old year. So, 22-23 forms P11D cannot be sent in on paper. They now have to be electronic. And when do we know about this? February. So, you've had two months notice for something that started a year ago. 
um, uh, those opinions have been expressed to the HMRC panels and groups, uh, but I think this is a cost-saving exercise. They don't want to handle the paper anymore, and the ministers come out and told them to stop it, and so they have. Um, so uh, there is a, a new mechanism for filing uh, P11Ds online that's just opened uh, up to 500, but if you've got more than 500, you've got a bit of a problem. And even if you got close to 500, uh, typing them all in by hand into some sort of HMRC solution uh, might take you a bit of time. Richard, anything to add to that? No, that's pretty much it. It's uh, it's certainly a bit of a kick, right. this one, I think to a lot of people. Well, Louise has just come back saying uh, thank you to the panel. Uh, she said it's comforting to know that others are having the same issue. Hopefully, something HMRC sorts out in the future. Absolutely right, Louise. Thank you for your question. Keep them coming in. Let's move into the next section then, the release and investment zones impact. We're going to talk about the announcements and locations, the impact on northern UK businesses, and payroll considerations, the important bit here, and potential benefits. Uh, Richard, I wonder if I can start with you this time. Yeah, so... We obviously moved on a bit further during the budget um, on the grounds that they announced, um, I guess, a lot more detail comparatively about what these are going to be. Um, so we know there's going to be 12. We know that they are going to be genuinely uh, in the northern part of the UK, um, as well as one in the devolved countries. Um, we are not aware yet, I guess, of what they'll actually represent but we do know that they're now in the application period um, for local authorities to apply because it will be there. It won't be like free ports where the government will decide what the free ports are. This will be an application from a local authority for an area to become an investment zone. Um, there's then uh, 80 million pounds uh, worth of funding. Um, that funding will represent growth reduce tax costs and various other, I guess, reliefs and encouragements for the area. From the payroll side, it's going to be another ERS relief. So comparatively similar to what we have with Freeports. Uh, and interestingly, from the budget, the threshold has been reduced from its initial announcement of the uh, upper secondary threshold to the same threshold as the Freeports. Um, so the 25,000 per year. Um, the expectation, therefore, that it will pretty much mirror and therefore be new employees, I should suspect, Simon, uh, within these zones um, from the date of um, confirmation. And then the, I'm guessing, therefore, we'll also have four more NI letters, uh, table letters to manage it in the same way that we have FISNL now for free ports. So where they're going to get the letters from, I don't know, because we're running a bit short. So I think we're going properly into the contracted out ones now. Um, but principally, we don't have a date, but you could possibly expect it's going to be the next tax year, um, depending how quickly they move. Uh, but principally, until we know who has had the confirmation of application, it's a bit of an out there. You can expect there'll be the standard maps, e.g. this is the area um, that you need to be within. Um, otherwise, as I said, it, you, you do suspect more than likely it will mirror to a degree the freeport model but instead of being separate multiple tax zones around a uh, a port itself it's going to be a singular area up north 
Simon, anything to add? Uh, so yes, yeah, so from a payroll consideration side, I guess there's an element of uh, I uh, for the first year, it's likely that they'll operate similar to free ports. So using the I call them the fizzle uh, letters, F I S and L, um, and then in the future year, it's probably going to get its own set. I'm just hoping and uh, certainly responding in consultation that I don't want them to set another upper accrual point uh, in law that you have to have separate in software. I'm going to do align some of these things, please. Otherwise, we're going to have 50 um, upper accrual points at some point or other, all of different values, although they all then declared to be the same. Um, so, yeah, interesting times. It would be interesting to know. It's not something I don't think we've got in a poll or anything, but it would be interesting to know if any of the listeners are actually in free ports um, or dealing with that. The other aspect, I guess, of national insurance is really on the subject, and, and uh, that was subject to um, parliamentary question, was on the use of the veterans' national insurance reliefs, because I think the prediction of the original impact assessment was that 10,000 employers would benefit from veterans' NIC reliefs. And in relation to the parliamentary answer, there's about 459. So it's way down on the original employer expectation of benefit. So only 459 employers so far have actually benefited from uh, the V national insurance reliefs for veterans. So yeah, let's see if what anyone, happens. If anyone is benefiting, yeah, if they've got 78 people online with us at the minute, if any of you are involved in this on the Freeports uh, or, or, or have information or I questions related to any of this, put it in the chat box. It'd be interesting for us to find out. Um, perhaps you can do that while we run our next poll. Our next poll, let's, let's get everyone involved again. Uh, poll number two, uh, do you believe the national living wage increase is adequate? Obviously, this is in preparation for uh, the next section, which is very much about the national living wage increases. Uh, but before we get there, I want to find out if you think it's sufficient uh, or if it should be higher or if it's too high or if indeed you are unsure. And if you, while you're filling uh, that poll out, if you are involved in free ports on your payroll or, or, or uh, want any questions related to the release and investment zones impact we've just discussed, put it in the questions box. I will ask that in just a moment. Uh, but interested to find out here what people's thoughts are on national living wage increases and in a moment we're going to find out a little bit more about what that increase is obviously effective from the 1st of april and um, what the low pay commission is hinting at um, we're going to talk about that as well and the impacts on benefit packages and of course payroll considerations as well so we've got 78 of you hopefully you're all getting involved in this poll let's have a look at some of those uh, poll results let's see how they're looking what do we think here the results are fifth for those in audio only. We've got 54% say it's sufficient, which is interesting. 35% say it should be higher, 3% saying it's too high, and 8% unsure. So a little bit of a spread there. Uh, Richard, what are your thoughts? Um, so I think it will depend on the company, <laughs> is my initial view. Um, on the grounds that depending on how much money you've got, it will have a different effect on you. Um, as you imagine, we meet lots and lots and lots of companies um, and it is a very different and often polar view um, obviously a smaller business this is a significant increase this year um, it's 9.7 percent um, increase on salary um, with no sort of form of control over that extra money um, but you know the other side of the argument is well it can never be enough 
you know, the principal argument of the government is to hit two thirds median. Um, if you look at the TUC, they actually want it to be uh, three quarters median. So, you know, it's a different answer for a different person. Um, if it's you that's affected by it fiscally, then you want as much money as you can get. Um, but obviously, sure. if it's affecting you financially as a company, then it can be a real challenge um, with the extra costs, obviously, that an employer is currently facing due to, obviously, areas such as energy, um, transport and so on and so forth. So I think it is such a variant and sort of directed response to this based on your situation. Yeah, I probably agree. It's hard not to agree with that, really. It's definitely on how it impacts either you as an individual or family and, and you as a business are going to have slightly different responses there for sure. Well, let's jump into this section then. Uh, um, Simon, if you can tell us as we see the subjects come up a little bit about what the increase is uh, when it impacts us and uh, and what they're hinting at as well, although we do give the game away when you see the slide. Uh, Simon, take the floor. Yeah, sure. So uh, you'll know that uh, for those aged 23, it's uh, risen 9.7% to £10.42. And uh, the advertising is a little bit um inaccurate i'd probably say because it was telling everybody's being told that that rise applies from the first of april well it kind of does but doesn't so it applies to the first pay reference period that starts from the first of april or not so a lot of people are going to be disappointed in march because if their pay reference period sorry in april because if their pay reference period starts in march they're just paid in april it could well still be the old rate and not the new rate it's not point of payment it's not even point of work it's where's the start of the pay reference period that uh, triggers it in for 21 22 year olds 10 pound 18 for 18 to 20 749 under 18 is 528 and apprentices have been brought up to the under 28 rate as well at five pound 28 as well the other indication of course um well uh, i'm probably jumping ahead then it is uh, the low pay commission maybe we'll leave that for a, for a while but it does have impacts and i think uh, um that's the real hotbed of discussion is what's the impact elsewhere as a general principle the rise is fine prices going up etc will it drive inflation don't know um, or can it be affordable i think the low pay commission report tends to imply that it's not actually impacting the job market in the fact of making it shrink or increasing redundancies but um, we'll see what happens over time sure richard no i think he is i think uh, there is obviously further change to come um we have at least another year um of the current model um depending obviously on what happens next year in the elections. Um, but principally, you know, it, it, it is a contentious subject. It always will be, um, depending on who you are, where you are, what your position is fiscally in relation to business. You know, it is on a path that is linked almost, but not entirely to inflation. So, uh, you know, the low pay commission look at so many other areas, whether it be average earnings, um, actual cost of goods so it it is pretty much means tested um but i think it's just really the net effect because i guess the other way you have to look at it is it's not just your people on the national minimum wage that are affected um if you are increasing your national minimum wage people by that percentage by rights you've got to increase everybody else by at least some as well 
So the net effect is cascades up through the business. Um, and I think that's the other area, obviously, that, that would cause the bigger concern. Sure. So what are, what are the main impact? I don't know, there may be an impact on, on pensions as well, Andy. If there is, please do come in. But what are the impacts on benefits packages and payroll considerations? Well, the, ch the challenge is um, lots of benefit packages are constructed in a way to give tax and NI efficiencies. And uh, over the years, because most pay rates have probably been uh, had a little bit of a distance to the national minimum wage or now the national living wage, but they've rapidly increased where wages haven't. So they've now caught up. So a lot more people are now on living wage levels wouldn't have been three or four years ago they didn't mean above so they had a level of cushion to uh, salary sacrifice or operate optional remuneration arrangements or flex scheme and that has impacts so now it may have been i could and this touches on andy's area as well i could have uh, salary sacrifice my five percent pension contribution uh, earn five percent less uh, to benefit from the ni relief I haven't got 5% to sacrifice because if I do, I'll have dropped below national living wage levels. So what does the employer do? And that's where it starts to get. So I've got, I got a bike, I got a bike six months ago and now my earnings levels aren't sufficiently high enough to cushion the monthly payments to the employer that they're demanding. And uh, what about my childcare vouchers? And uh, and I did a holiday buy and all those sorts of things. And there's element of thinking, actually, are employers more likely to be in breach of national minimum wage law requirements? But national minimum wage extends beyond that, Nick, because sometimes they say, oh, we're all good. We're paying the rate. But, uh, but are they paying for that half an hour meeting after work when they all got together? Are they paying for some of the travel sure. um, and they're required to wear black shoes and a black shirt? Um, are they paying for that? So there is lots of things, nothing to do with work time. Well, that you pay for that count as work time for national minimum wage purposes. You know, will you do that little bit of, you know, there's an online course. Can you do that tonight when you're at home? You need to do that uh, on, uh, I don't know, health and safety issue or something for work related. Um, but no, we're not paying you for that. Uh, there's an element of uh, lots of employers, I think, are going to find themselves breaching minimum wage law, and they didn't even think they were. Yeah, and to escalate that even and further, I was going to say, I think it's a bit of a drag, sorry, Nick. Um, I guess to escalate that further, it's this change in work. So we talk about understanding catalogue and knowing work hours hybrid working makes that even more of a challenge when are your staff actually working when they're at home what hours are they actually doing are they doing a day's work having their dinner because they watch homes under the hammer in the daytime they're turning their laptop back on at night and working till nine ten o'clock at night how are you controlling that how do you know that and especially for instance with a lower paid staff that could therefore have an enormous effect on the calculation of national minimum wage against hours worked. So the whole area of control becomes substantially harder um, when it comes to hybrid working. Have you ever asked yourself, how can I recruit payroll staff effectively? 
please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet. Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Sure, Andy. Any well, yeah. on pensions we need to, to consider here before we move on? Yeah, well, as time is right, and, and and Richard as well. In terms of, you know, if if national minimum wage in effect has gone up, and therefore, if your salary sacrifice means you can't do that anymore because you will go below the uh, national minimum wage, and it is per period, it's not only rate based, is it? That's what we're saying. So um, you need to take people out of salary sacrifice and make them and put normal contributions in place, um, and that needs to be done for for your april payroll um and and i guess i mean we've i think we've touched on this before as well of course if national wage has gone up that is a pay increase and watch out for alabaster kicking in as well for your yeah. your maternity calculations um and i forget employer contributions during maternity leave are based on the pay the person would have had um so alabaster does have an impact and so yeah so Yes, as always, it's never straightforward, is it? It's one little bit, all of a sudden becomes, wow, there's a lot of bits involved. That's why payroll is yeah. so wonderfully complex and challenging. We know payroll is complex. That's why we're here, right? And for those outside of payroll, may not realise it, but we do. It's complex. It's complex. Well, I've got a couple of things that have uh, come in. One's an observation. Uh, just to say there still needs to be an element of trust when it comes to working from home. Um, so that was an interesting observation there from Jeanette. But also a question comes in from Paul. Uh, does the panel think that national minimum wage legislation is out of date and needs to be updated to make it clearer for employers to understand and remain compliant? Potentially, but I think there's uh, there's challenges there because I guess the national, uh, it's changed departments. So it used to be the business and energy industrial strategy. Now they've changed. So it's now the department for business and, and uh, I forgot what else, it trade, isn't it? So it's the uh, DBT, that's the department that looks after national minimum wage law, they'll probably say they think it is. But what's happened over the years is we've come up with convoluted um, schemes to get round uh, tax and national insurance reliefs. And that's the, where the challenge is. So we're kind of pretending that things weren't earnings to avoid paying tax and national insurance legitimately not realizing that that therefore reduces contractual earnings especially when we reflect the original quite often in pay and then reduce it down to affect the tax and national insurance so in some ways they'll probably say uh, well that's the construction you've come up with not the law now should the law be changed to change that maybe it should and i think there are pleas and there's lobbying going on to actually allow salary sacrifice to take place for example without affecting minimum wage because it benefits the employee but um but the review that happened uh, i'm going to say a couple of years ago but we've had covid for two and a half years so it must have been at least five years ago uh the minister at the time but the ministers have all changed was no 
we're not changing it because there's an element of um, they could be used as means for employers to exploit workers and they're there to protect the worker. So, um, but it would be interesting to have it changed. Um, I think some of the audit uh, requirements are over officious on interpretation maybe because nothing you can't have a pay frequency longer than a month you've got to pay it within certain time if you're if you've breached you can't undo the breach you can only top up the payment you're still in breach there's all these sorts of things but uh, it would be nice to have it more practical in its application but um, it's a tough one but the other impact and you know uh, Andy talks about you've got to change the pension scheme there's an element of some we see operates called flipping so they'll change it to an employee deduction instead. Uh, but the problem with employee deductions is who are you paying? So if I've got a bike from my employer, even though it's a third party, and it's a loaned bike to me as an employee, and I'm now paying it, who am I paying? And I think the B of you is you're paying the employer. So you think you got around national minimum wage breach, do you? I don't think you have because any deduction for the benefit of the employer reduces national minimum wage pay. The breach hasn't gone away at all. You've just changed it and taxed the individual and charged them national insurance. The breach is still there. So there's an element of being very careful. So uh, it is overly complicated, Nick, as you're suggesting. Will it be simplified? I don't know that it will be because I think they'll say it's an it's there to protect the worker from <coughs> exploitation and would simplification make it actually easier to be exploited don't know I know Richard's done a lot of training on this anything you want to add on this this element uh, Richard, before we move forward yes yeah, so the, the thing Simon was talking about about the last review it came out in December 2019 um it was just before yeah. COVID that they re-announced so in principle it was almost an announcement because they made a bit of a mess of confirming the rules around um, fines because they basically stated that if you um, were incorrect due to salary sacrifice it was a slap risk rather than a fine and it kind of made people believe that you could therefore do it um, and there was a number of cycle to work providers who basically stated you could um, for a period of time so on the back of that in December 2019 there was a I guess a comparatively short output to say the rules haven't changed um, in that respect. I think really, um, as Simon quite rightly said, the issue here is a number. Number one is the reduction of eligibility to certain benefits depending on your income. So you almost turn areas into elitist benefits. Um, we could use, for instance, EV cars, prime example. You know, an EV lease is quite expensive. You know, it's going to be three, four, five hundred pounds. It therefore hugely limits those who could basically be in that scheme, um, which could be seen as unfair. It could be seen as elitist. But I think the bigger area and probably the more important is is pensions. You know, they are desperately trying to encourage more and more saving to pensions. We've seen the uh, auto enrollment bill where we're looking at reducing the age to 18, removing possibly the trigger, all of that good stuff to get more and more people into it. But a prime saving and a prime benefit to the employee and the employer is salary sacrifice. And if all of a sudden half of your people can't 
or because of a nationally minimum wage increase, a large number who possibly could now can't, then surely that's a negative thing because it is reducing the value of the pension and I guess the appetite for that pension scheme with both the employer and the employee. So I have a suggestion um, on this one in relation to pensions, Nick, and it's something kind of uh, put through the CIPP as well, is the reason we have salary sacrifice pensions is to get the NI relief because pension contributions don't get NI relief, they get tax relief. There's an element of why don't you just give them tax and NI relief for an employee contribution? then you wouldn't need anything because an employee contribution doesn't reduce pay for national minimum wage purposes. And and it's sort of, we kind of have that for share incentive plans that you get NI relief. Why don't we extend the NI relief to other things so that it's an equitable, you know, even uh, playground where uh, we can all play the game. Um, and that would do away with some of these challenges because it wouldn't matter what your earnings levels were if it was related to an employee contribution because you wouldn't need salary sacrifice because you get the tax and NI relief regardless. But um, see where that one's accepted. Uh, yeah. I think I have one yeah. further angle on this one, which can be comparatively short. Um, as a process, as a model, as a area of guidance, it has changed so much that I think if Bayes did do one thing, it would be to review the guidance and rewrite it. Um, whether you've been involved in it or not, and I have, because I've been working with some payroll providers on automated solutions. Um, it is a total rabbit hole, the guidance on national minimum wage. Um, a, a example, if you are looking at cumulative annual hours and reaching your annual hours prior to the end of the tax year, um, which will affect national minimum wage paid staff um, if they are not paid for the extra hours they do i dare anyone to trawl through the guidance on that and the substantial pages um, and one floats to another floats to another, and actually gets to the end and understand it um it took me well, i think i know a little bit at payroll it took me ages just to decipher it so i i think bays aren't helping themselves with the guidance they provide um and I'm sure Simon won't disagree. Well, especially when the HMRC manuals are totally different. Mm. That's made out there, guys. That's a payroll thing. It goes over my head, but everyone here laughs. I'm sure the panel is watching are looking the same. So there we go. Well, let's, let's have a look at the future of pay things. That kind of relates to Paul's question in relation to whether things will be simplified. Uh, a big question, and uh, probably not one we can completely get through in, in the space of a, a few minutes here on PQT. But a lot of discussion. Me and Simon have had a lot of conversations offline as well about the future of pay and whether or not we're going to see the dissolution of the monthly pay cycle. And of course, we've got lots of innovative uh, new solutions coming into the marketplace. People are calling it on-demand pay, pay on demand or earned wage access and all these different terms we need to get our heads around. Effectively, all pretty similar things as far as I'm, I'm aware. But um, we're having a, a potential movement away from the pay cycles as we understand them with a move for many companies, or certainly the suppliers pushing the narrative anyway of the, the fact that employees are going to want in the future access to pay on demand where they can choose their payday or even earn in real time. Um, is this the future of pay, Simon? Are we going to see the dissolution of the monthly pay cycle as we sit here in the UK? Is pay on demand, as you see from a service provider perspective, I know it's a solution SD Works, I believe, offer. Um, is it, are we seeing rapid uptake? Um, take the floor. 
It, it'd be nice to. You, you'll know I've been working on pay on demand, if I call it pay on demand, for uh, you know, probably 15 years. And uh, my master's degree, when I did the uh, dissertation, was on the use of the internet. At the time of writing that, which is back in 99, the uptake of the internet for any thing to do with payroll was about six percent whereas these days you'd probably say what what interaction has internet exchange of data got to do with payroll and i'd probably argue it's a hundred percent um as opposed to uh, those 24 years ago uh, when i originally wrote it and certainly some of the papers i wrote were on actually is the pay cycle dead and should it be i think we're some years away from it and I'm not sure the early wage access solves that yet either. It's, it sort of pretends as a middle step to get there, to give that flexibility. But at one time, you know, all direct debits were probably taken out on the first. These days, you can choose when your direct debit happens. You have it any day. And there's an element of, could I actually choose when I want to be paid? Or even have stages. And some of the companies out there have offered solutions, but there's an element of, do we ever get there with payroll? The technology is at a stage where it could go that way, is that you just choose when you want to be paid and how often, and it will pay you. And I'm meaning really pay you, not just access early. Uh, the access is kind of a stepping stone to, to kind of my future thoughts there, but you're right. So they're becoming pop more popular. I think they're changing. I think the model's getting better. Um, you, you'll know that I was very suspicious of some in the early days because I think the driving force was the fee. Um, and the fees have dropped drastically, even to the extent that these days, most the employer pays any fee if there is one. So there's no cost to the employee because that then goes into minimum wage issues, etc. And it's interesting the HMRC views that have come out recently. But I'd like to think that we don't need a pay cycle you just pay people when they've chosen and all we're doing in payroll is uh, ticking along. Now, some of the payroll managers are going, oh, you mean I'm not going to do the uh, holiday on the 15th to the 17th of the month? I'm not going to do the tax codes from this. I think we, as an industry, we like the cycles. Do we really need the cycles or could we move to a model that just breaks it and we're just dealing with the transaction of the day? Now, I think some cycles will always be there to an extent, but there's an element of could we actually give a freedom that actually pay yourself whenever you like. And it's true pay, not an advance, but actually true pay. So that's where my head's been for the past 15 years. But will I see that in my lifetime? I'd like to think I would, but I think the technology is there where it could end up that way. Yeah, there's certainly been You're some shifts. I think initially when we first started talking about this, Simon, it was... We were coming away from the days of Wonga and it was kind of the, the pay on demand was was a, a short term loan and it was a little bit more convoluted and complex than it is, of course, these days. Sorry, um, Richard, you were going to come in there, but um, I think um, those that were perhaps initially reticent may not be aware of how far the technology has moved on and how actually the solution could work in modern day terms as to how it used to work. Uh, perhaps, Richard, you can bring some of that to light if, um, if you've got some experience here. Yeah, I think uh, behaviorally, the world is changing. These blooming millennials again, we've talked about these before, haven't we? Um, <laughs> where the expectation has changed in the world. You know, everybody wants everything now, yesterday, delivered, uber 
uber collected, whatever it may be. So just the general mentality has changed. I think in the industry, and we certainly see it because we've had multiple panels, multiple meetings on this subject. The issue you have with it to a degree is it's a very polar argument. You will have one side of the argument that is you're encouraging debt and they won't be moved on that. You know, why would we want to give people money earlier than they would normally get it on the grounds that they may not have enough at the end of the month and they will continually be in that debt? While the other side will look at it and go, well, actually, you're kind of in a bit of a blinkered world because whether you like it or not, if they want that money, they're already getting it. The difference is at the moment, they could be getting it from Billy McGrogging down the road at 999.99%. So surely it is better that it's controlled. It's free. You have awareness of it. And therefore, we can move into the probably biggest watchword area at the moment, which is financial well-being and actually support the individual. So it's very, very bipolar. The big difference, I think, is going back to Simon's point. If it was actually genuinely real time pay that was controlled and decided by the individual, then none of this well, half of that argument's gone. So I think is what is pay on demand today in comparison to what does Nirvana look like? And it will definitely happen in Simon's life because he's only 23. So, I mean, I think within the next sort of 70 odd years, we'll be sorted, Simon. But uh, in principle, it's at the I moment. Wish. Yes, I'm, I'm trying to help. Um, at the moment, <laughs> at the moment, it isn't truly what it should be. And therefore, employers especially are very reticent to change to a debt model. But also, you've always got the Well, we've always done it this way. We've always paid people that way. So why would we change? I think the bigger difference. But then it may, seen, may not be their decision, of course, Richard. No, I, I agree. But I think one of the areas we have seen this is, is this people is being led by this is being led. Uh, this is being led at boardroom level, right? And, and ultimately, I see it from the recruitment side of the fence, which is employees have a very strong choice on what they want, and if they if yeah. a company doesn't um, you know, bend over to to, to 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 take on the requirements that they're oh. demanding, then employees are going to walk out, as we've seen with the gate resignation, and they won't stay, or you won't be able to attract them. Well, so I think if, um, at, as much as payroll people may not want it, there may not be their choice. Well, this is the other area which I would have gone on to, I think, actually, is depending on your work type, in some environments, it's now a non-negotiable. Um, so hospitality, retail, a lot of them will already offer this solution, whether it be wage mate or whatever it may be. And if you don't offer it, it could be a significant reason why somebody wouldn't work for you because the other ones do. So I think there is huge pressure within certain industries. Um, but I think the other area that we are seeing is people are reconsidering their pay frequencies. So where you've been monthly, 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 actually we can alleviate a lot of this issue by going to weekly. And I think we've seen a chunk of that happen as well because then you are giving them pay more regularly and therefore possibly assisting there too. So it's an enormous subject. We could talk for six hours on it easily. Yeah. So I can hear, see Simon nodding though, Simon. So what are your thoughts here? Anything you'd like to add? Big subject. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I think Richard's going along with my Nirvana really in dream there, thinking 
Um, but there is an element of, you know, even if you stuck with a paid monthly cycle, why can't someone choose to be paid on the 16th or the 18th or the 20th or the 25th? Choose your monthly cycle. You do that with your mortgage these days. All mortgages aren't taken out on the first, which they would have been 30 years ago sort of thing. It's sort of choose. But even then, yeah. So I, I think the, the software industry could be ready to support this. There's an element of whether we as a payroll industry are ready for it. And I think uh, our cultural difficulty will be changing our cycles to be not so today is this day tomorrow is overtime today after is holiday the well, day after is sickness the back of that that's been put in the chat here simon where it says uh, an individual joanna said if um pay and demand comes in it would be a step too far for me and time for me to change careers and i think that kind of links to what you were saying you know it, companies are going to be pushing this narrative particularly on the software and service side of things um Will it be a step too far for the for the payroll professionals to be able to, to handle that? That that will it be a big cultural shift really in the way that payroll is managed. So be an interesting thing for to, to see as 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 it comes through. What I will say is, from my experience on the recruitment side of things, it, it's a narrative that's being very much pushed by those that are in the, the, the sales side of this process. Those that offer the solution and therefore want their clients to take it up because obviously there's there's financial gain to be had there. Um, and I'm not necessarily seeing much of the conversation for those that have adopted it necessarily pushing the rhetoric. And that's not really the people that are using this that are really pushing how it's changed their operations tenfold yet. That said, I think it's my personal view is this inevitability that this is coming in um, because I think employees ultimately will have the uh, have the final final vote. And I think that's something that employers are going to be asking for. We're in a, a culture now of on demand, whether it's streaming movies, of uh, getting your Uber on your phone or getting your payroll. And I can only, from my perspective, can only see it moving that way around. And um, perhaps a couple of questions that come into my, Yeah, sorry. Yeah, my, my dream, if anything, um, Nick, is that people have the choice to do whatever. So there's a question where the technology will support whatever you choose to do. And my dream is that actually, if you want a monthly cycle, you can have a monthly cycle. If you want a daily cycle, you can have a daily cycle. It will do either. And that's the real dream, whereas we tend to be polar in application as an element of actually we've got the freedom. There's, needs there's some polarisation in in my questions box. I'm going to come to you just a moment, Rich. I know you're eager to say something. No, I'm, I'm going to give a little polar views here oh, in the questions box. What Joanne's view, one minute, I'll come to you in one second, Richard. But, um, Joanna just said that it might be for her be time to change careers. And yet Jess has mentioned, I would love this for our employees. I think it'd be more difficult to persuade our accounts team and board, but this would be a fantastic acquisition yeah. for us. And another comment from Therese that says business cash flow could stop pay on demand, though, i.e. not having the money in the bank to enable payments to be accessed, which is what Richard was uh, referring to. Sorry, Richard, back to yourself, sir. No, I was going to be facetious and offer a new service called Uber Payroll. That's going to be my future. So that, that's is, offering is taxes for people want to the career when it comes in. Or, uh... <laughs> yeah. All my staff will be well, self there's a brilliant point here on annualised contract growth and transactional payroll. Um, I'm not quite sure what, what this is referring to, but I, th I think it uh, for those that, that, that do, uh, I think this comes from Simon's, um, something that Simon wants to raise. So I wonder if we can just touch on that before we open our last poll for the day, Simon. 
Um, yeah, I'll have to rack my brains to remember what this was. Yes, there's a lot more short-term contracting going around. So there's an element of thinking, how are we coping with that? So annualized contracts growth. So yes, you're not you haven't got a full-time job for your life, as it were, or until you resign, but you've got a one year and in a year's time, you take out another year and in a year's time, you take out another year. So yes, uh, transactional payroll, I think we've probably discussed as part of this thing, but uh, sure. certainly it's always been sort of one of my dreams for uh, actually trying to get a true transactional payroll out there that can do anything. Well, I think uh, we've mentioned this before, the, um, you know, the idea that, that, that software could do everything for you is kind of a good thing, right? It allows us to, to focus on more strategic tasks and do other things. Interestingly, um, someone said, I won't give the name away, but someone spoke to me at a recent payroll event that they, th they thought the word payroll needed a rebrand and maybe we should name it as pay on demand comes in. It was from the software provider side, so they're pretty sure this is going to be uh, brought in by every payroll in the country. But they were saying maybe what it does we should change the industry to be called pay time managers instead of payroll managers. Uh, when I brought this uh, up to some payroll colleagues, they were not in agreement, shall we say. But um, interesting that some of people are thinking that way around. Uh, and also, Jess just mentioned here, Richard, that you should copyright Uber payroll right now. So uh, um, My bigger concern, actually, though, is my biggest concern is all Simon dreams about is payroll. That's my real worry here. Well, my worry is yeah, you've only just found this out now, Richard. Um, this is common knowledge yeah. for everyone else that knows Simon. <laughs> exactly. Payroll is sexy. That's why I don't, you know, I wouldn't go for pay time. I'd have to get fall in love with something else then. Yeah, you know, yeah. Payroll's the thing, isn't it? Sexy. What's wrong with payroll? Let's see if we can get it trending. Payroll is sexy. Hashtag. Just been to PQT. Hashtag yes. payroll is sexy. Right. Let's go into uh, poll number three then, which is uh, what is your opinion on pay potentially becoming more transactional? Uh, so that'll link some of these together. But thank you, everyone, for being so involved in this conversation. Lots of uh, points and questions and things coming into the, the questions box here. Keep them coming in. I love to read them out as they come through. Uh, options here. Positive. It offers more flexibility. Uh, negative. It complicates payroll management. C. Unsure. I need more information. And D. Not applicable to my organization in brackets yet. Uh, I think in relation to the uh, more information, going back to the uh, the pay on demand element, I think this is something where more information is needed because the the uh, information has advanced so so much on this from where it was even if only a few years ago uh, to where it is now. So maybe worth uh, everyone just having a if you're not up to speed, just just getting up to speed with where things are in the current state of play of things. Uh, in a moment, we're going to jump to a pensions update. Andy's been waiting very patiently in the wings there to, to tell us all about the latest updates and pensions in relation to uh, lifetime allowances, annual allowances, exceptions, and a new corporate plan. So we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, so thank you, Andy, for your patience on the panel. Uh, but for the meantime, let's have a look at these poll results. So for those listening in audio only, we've got 10% say positive, it offers more flexibility. 33% negative because it complicates payroll management, 45% need more information, and 12% not applicable to my organization yet. I think I asked Richard last time, so I'll come back to you, Simon. What are your thoughts on these results? I think uh, probably as I'd expect, to be honest, uh, Nick, and it also reflects back and going back to 1999 when I was doing the master's dissertation on the use of the internet. Uh, similar statistics would have probably have come up then um, on the positive, negative, unsure, if I ask the question of whether the internet would ever be used by payroll. And so uh, I think it's very much aligned, but I think that's just a reflection of the day. But I think this is where it's exciting. So 
uh, you know, Apple came up with an idea that we hadn't really come up with. Uh, I remember, you know, you think, what was a mobile phone for? It was for making phone calls, wasn't it? Who makes a phone call these days on a mobile phone? It's kind of, you do mm-hmm. everything else on it, don't you? Uh, so I, I think this reflects a reality, uh, but I think it, uh, but has some positivity in it because it's showing a trend change. I think potentially the biggest thing that's really going to impact is, is you know, just seeing the, the, the introduction of open source generative AI to the masses and um, some people yeah. with very intelligent solutions coming on the back of that. And I think it's probably the biggest game changing thing that's hit the technological industry for a long, long time. So I'll be interested to see what we're talking about in relation to what open source AI can be offering the payroll industry and perhaps perhaps six short months away. I think we'll start seeing some uh, some new things appear um, pay on demand. I'm sure we'll be, be in that conversation as well. Um, Louise has just made a comment on this. I won't give the company name away just for uh, parity, but she says that she works with a great solution for pay on demand. Uh, so th- good to hear that one of our uh, listeners actually has pay on demand in play at the moment. Uh, in that particular solution, they say they offer advances at a cost of £1.49 per transaction and then payroll just deduct the advance amount each pay period. So interesting there, the 70 you know, attendees still on, on show at the moment that we have got some people that have a pay-on-demand solution in play already. So uh, really interesting to see that. But listen, let's jump into pensions for Andy's uh, time in the limelight now. Andy, I wonder if you could bring us up to speed in the latest uh, in relation to pensions. Um, I'm going to let you take the floor in relation to lifetime allowances and more. Uh, over to you, sir. Yeah, well, I suppose the first thing probably is to go back to the pay and demand, really. Uh, we just had that unsure how it all works. And I think really, yeah, the... The example you just mentioned where you're just doing advances and recovering those advances versus real-time processing of payroll, tax, national insurance and pension, automatic enrollment assessment, putting people into a scheme. How many times will you allow that real-time to take place in the month or whatever it might be? Um, So I can understand why people have said unsure, a bit more information needed because if it goes beyond just in an advance, a loan which you recover, then then you are talking about tax national insurance calculations every time you do a true payment and you need to be doing automatic enrollment with that. So the third, if there's three times in the monthly cycle, the third time might be when they trigger because at that point, payroll is aware of the overtime payment going through. Um, yeah, so it could be really interesting and complex. So yeah, I can agree with the unsure. <laughs> I think um, there is one more thing, if I can as well, and yeah, it's the yeah. whole area of uh, universal credit. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, universal credit is based on the pay reference period and its return through RTI. Um, obviously, advances per se don't affect it, but if we are talking about multiple payments, how is that going to not make universal credit explode and i think that's the other key area sorry uber payroll tax even payroll then there we go people can't back handle it yes and, and that's why i think um the future is probably choice of when rather than how often yeah uh, as as, yeah. A, an, as an author thought process so the cycle uh, that Andy's talking about is there, but you've chosen when it is rather than the employer's That's chosen. That's a bit like the working from home situation, right? We've got people working on hybrid and it, it started with everyone doing whenever they wanted. And actually, businesses yeah. quickly discovered, not in all cases, but in most cases, that actually 
we need a little bit of a plan here. We can, we're going to offer hybrid working. We want people in the office on this particular day and out of the office on the next because you try and organize a meeting. I come in on a Monday and you decide to come in on a Tuesday. We miss each other um, and I need a little bit more organization. So I'm sure it'll be, it'll kind of, I would imagine uh, these kind of solutions will find their natural way forward and people have to agree on particular yeah. dates um for payment but i guess we'll we'll wait and see i'm conscious we want to get through the sd works academy launch information so uh back to you again andy tell us a little bit about the latest just on the lifetime allowance no pressure i'm going to take 12 minutes <laughs> um, yeah, do it. Yeah. So you're hopefully aware of these lifetime allowance that that has been removed so instead of the million odd pounds cap being the maximum amount you can have in pension or pension schemes um, that's been removed. The annual allowance used to be 40,000 has gone up to 60,000. That's the most you can put into a pension scheme in a year. There's lots of things around that, so don't, at the very simple level. And if you've drawn your pension ready, then the was a 4,000 pound maximum amount, and that's gone up to 10,000. So you may have people on your payroll, for instance, let's look at the lifetime allowance, who have previously paid the maximum amount they could have paid into the scheme or their their scheme value was at, at that cap and they were then given tax protected status for their pension savings and basically if they got automatically enrolled they'd need to opt out to avoid paying more into the pension scheme so that's all gone and for some of these people annual lands for instance you might very well have been giving them extra cash because you could no longer be paying them an employer contribution, for instance, because they weren't allowed to have any more in the pension scheme. So I'm guessing in April, you've been busy working out what to do in terms of, okay, do these people want to join the scheme now? So do you need to ask them the question, do you want to come in? Or if you, if they can now pay extra into the scheme because they're not capped by the 40K anymore, et cetera, then do you start to reduce the perhaps a cash allowance that you're paying them as a pension supplement because they weren't allowed to pay anything above the cap, uh, the 40K cap as it was, now it's 60K. So I'm hoping that you've been working all that through, but of course we're still really waiting to hear all the full details. And you were, you did have exceptions. So Osmanic Roman said that if someone has got tax protected status for their pension savings, and if they do get automatically enrolled or they get re-enrolled, you as an employer can choose not to actually enroll them or re-enroll them because all they're going to do is opt out. Well, you can still, so at the moment, you can still apply those exceptions. And an individual will need to understand their own position over their pension savings as to determine whether or not they want to go back in or whether it's best not to. And I think for the moment, there's a lot of clarity still needed. So we're still waiting as TPR and DDP, DBP probably waiting on Treasury. And you've got all those machinations around the place. And where do people want? Well, they need an individual probably talking to the pension scheme saying, should I restart contributions? So I personally think it's still unclear yet. Um, so nothing's so one way of looking at it is nothing's changed, um, but it has changed. So I'll leave it with the individual. So that's quite a lot. I don't know if anyone's um, Simon and Richard. What are your view, views on what you've heard? You know. Well, yeah, th this is sort of the confusion areas, Andy, and and the worry because I guess there were use these reasons were used for not complying with pensions auto enrolment because they let them off the hook. But the reasons have gone. So there's elements of are they are they really okay to carry on with those because they don't apply anymore 
So yes, it's what do you do about triennial re-enrolment? Do the exemptions exist? And I guess you're saying at the moment it's sort of carry on, but is is that open potentially to abuse? Yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? But the individual can always opt in. So an individual could, can opt yeah. in, and an employer has to then put them in the scheme. Um, yeah. But I, th I think over less, you know, hopefully in, in 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 a few weeks, whatever, we'll have a much more definite position. But as it stands at the moment, TPR's yeah. understanding is these exceptions can still be applied by the employer. Sure. But it's, it's a bigger picture. But I'm it is. But I'm wondering how many employer schemes are actually reviewing this question and interacting with the payroll professionals, etc. Because sometimes mm. I often see, you know, the pension scheme may change its scheme rules and think, well, we're going to change, but they don't actually tell the payroll department they've changed. So it's an element of, you know, who's, who decides, you know, who's who's the dog, who's the tail, who's the head, who's the tail sort of thing. Uh, and often see those sorts of disagreements, but sometimes even with the threshold staying the same as it was, Andy, there's an element of, well, payroll, you should have left the threshold as it was. And it's kind of, well, you've got to review the rules. You've got to tell the mm. payroll people what to do because they don't set the rules of a scheme. No, no, I, I agree. The scheme, ideally, I mean, I went, I, I did, there was a large employer um spoke to a large employer a few days back and they've they have had a couple of their people opt in who are subject to a lifetime allowance but it was their choice the individual's choice and i think that's quite important not to all of a sudden start putting everyone back in um maybe you, you could you could discuss it you could give the facts but um individuals need to really be chatting to their maybe IFAs, et cetera, to find out what the best thing of for them to do personally is. If the, you know, because maybe there's things in the background as to why they got that tax protected status that they need to preserve. Yeah. Because actually it's better thinking... to that than it is to have to start paying in, you know. So it's it's a personal thing, isn't it? Yeah. And I think some schemes or some payrolls were applying some sort of forty thousand check. And there's an element of has that been reviewed? Does it need to be reviewed? Mm. Now it's sixty thousand. So I think yeah. there's an element of the announcements were fairly late. So there's a question of and and the um, having been a pension trustee, the cycle of pension change can sometimes be where well, we have three meetings a year type yeah. thing. Um, actually, has it caught up yet and into the mm. thought process of change? Yeah, because as as I said, some of these you may be paying people extra allowance because they can't have their full contribution paid in under the scheme rules because they would hit the cap, but that cap has gone to sixty k. Yeah, and then so the two forty thousand a year to two sixty thousand, if it's off the top of my head, as a salary. So if you're thinking, listen to all this, thinking, oh, I don't know anything about this, then it probably means you don't have anyone on your payroll who's affected but if you do and you need to chat to hr pensions etc to find out what the future impact is um i think that 
pretty much dead on time uh, here, chap. So I'm going to say a huge thank you to Simon Parsons, Andy Nichols, and Richard George for joining me on this expert panel. My name is Nick Day. It's been a pleasure to be the host of the show, and I look forward to welcoming you all next month. Of course, all of you, I wish you a very good bank holiday. In fact, there'll be three bank holidays you've enjoyed until the next show as we discussed at the start. So enjoy your holidays. For those that have really taken advantage, enjoy your two weeks for eight days, as Richard said at the start of the chat. Um, and uh, have a great time. Enjoy the coronation. And we'll be welcoming you all back on the 25th of May. It's sdworks.co.uk forward slash PQT. Thank you, everyone. And we'll see you in a month. That's all for this episode of the Payroll Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and gained valuable insights and inspiration to advance your payroll career or your payroll operation. If you haven't already, please, please do subscribe to the show so you never miss a future episode. And if you found this podcast helpful, please take a moment to leave us a little review on your preferred podcast platform. It's your feedback that really helps me to improve the show and, of course, attract new listeners so we can continue to raise the profile of the payroll industry for all. Finally, if you know anyone who could benefit from this payroll podcast, please do share it with them. Let's spread the word and build a vibrant community of payroll professionals worldwide. Thank you, of course, for listening. My name is Nick Day. Please do look me up on LinkedIn and send me a connection request. In the meantime, I look forward to being with you again on the next episode of the Payroll Podcast real soon.